You are listening to Pastor John Castile's Father's Day Sermon from the 1045 a.m. service recorded on June 20th, 1993. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin at the first verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, and the first verse. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and give me ability to speak clearly and let his word be rich in our heart this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and I pray, Lord, for help from your holy presence, from your spirit that dwells within me and the anointing, O God, that we call for at this moment to speak your word in simplicity and in power, that people's lives can be touched, that men, O God, the men of our church, can understand their place and their calling and the process of growth in Jesus' name. We ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us. Amen. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is a very, very important part of Peter's letter to the churches in time of trial. The difficulty that they faced in the church at that time was the tremendous political persecution that was rising up against them. And Peter writes his epistle to the believers, the diaspora, those that were already scattered by this persecution throughout the Gentile region of the world, and especially around the confines of Rome. In just a few short weeks and even months, Christians would be tormented and tortured beyond measure. And so Paul is writing to establish a standard against all of that problem that was going to surmount them. The economy, the political situation, the, the, the safety factor of their lives. And in that he talks, and I believe especially to the men, about their need to grow and what they should become. Therefore, when you find it in the Bible, you should always look for, before it says it, when he says, therefore rid yourselves, there is, it's in reference to something that has gone on before. And so we find in uh, verse 23, he says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all the glory is like the flowers. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So Paul is Peter is focusing the men's lives and hearts upon their relationship with the word of God. He said they had been born again, not by a perishable seed, but by an incorruptible seed, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. That it was the word that had come into their hearts. 
that had brought them into the new birth. Well, we know the new birth process happens when a man or woman confesses the lordship of Jesus and surrenders their hearts to him. And so the new birth is not just the word of God, but it is the word of God that is in there that causes people to come to that understanding of who Jesus is and brings them to agree with that word in their confession. And so Peter is bringing them back to this powerful issue in the lives of people, the word of God. And he talks about that relationship of being a newborn. Well, when you're born, it's a very powerful transition time in your life. When you're conceived, the, uh, the new life attaches itself to the inside the, the mother's womb. And then a sack is formed around and it begins to grow and it grows in water. And that new child that is within the mother begins to develop. And you see a little head form and finally fingers and hands and a heart and eyes and ears. And that child grows and grows under the nurture of that situation that it's in. But there comes a time when that child's development can go no further in its present situation. It must come out of the womb to take on the fullness of what its destiny is. It has eyes when it's in the womb, but it can't see with them. It has ears and can only hear partially. It has lungs that can't breathe. It has feet that can't walk. It has hands that can't work yet. Until the birth process happens. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said to him very simply, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Because just like a child cannot see his father's face in the mother's womb. Neither can a person who is just without the new birth. Without coming to the Lord Jesus and being ushered into a new life where you're now connected in spirit with God. You have a spirit, but that spirit is totally incapacitated by the natural life and because of the sin bondage. And it's as you're born again that you're brought into life by the Lord. And so even as when birth time comes and the, the water sack breaks and lubricates the passage and through great pain and through great exertion, there is a, a, a birthing process which is the passage from one form of living into a more expanded way of life. Even so it is when you're born again by the Spirit of God but that seed that caused you to grow, that caused you to become born again is the Word of God. And then he goes on to say that all of the glory of man and all of our prowess and everything is like the grass that withers. The only thing that is going to endure and be powerful is the word of God, which lives and endures forever. So you can see the analogies, how he's using them. The thing about being born, as wonderful as it is, it's only the beginning of something else. It's not the end in itself. Tragically in the church... Most Christians are happy to just be born again. They're so thrilled. And a lot of church activity is totally involved around birthing new Christians. And everybody's excited because they're born again. But being born is only the beginning of what you should become. It's a tragedy when Christians only remain children or babies all their time in God and never grow. And so Paul, Peter says, this is how you grow 
now that you've been born again, because you were born by the Word of God, because you understand the position and the place of the Word of God, he says, therefore, rid yourself of all of these things that will hinder and stunt and cause you not to be able to get past the babyhood of being a Christian. Rid yourself of all malice. Malice is the, the evil intention about other people and other situations. Rid yourself of all of that. Rid yourself of all such things as envy, which deals with desiring what is not yours or what God has not yet provided for you. Or hypocrisy, which is trying to cast a, an idea that you're somebody you're not. The masks we wear, the, the falseness, the, the, the attitudes we put forward. He talks about such things as slander. Put aside all of these things, all deceit, hypocrisy. Put those aside. Those won't help you grow. That's what the manhood of the world is like. But you've been called to a different kind of manhood. He says, instead of those things, he says, crave. Say this word with me, crave. Crave this, the pure milk of the word. And now another analogy. He's used the analogy and the, the, the symbolism of birth to explain to us what happens in the spirit when we come to new birth in Jesus. And now he's talking about growing and, and letting, letting there be in you a craving towards something positive. Rather than taking your time up in the old way of living, rid yourself of those ideas and of those concepts and of those attitudes and of those actions and now crave instead the pure milk of the word. And, and, and in that you can see, if you're visual, a child, a newborn baby, how it just craves to be fed. And it no, there's an instinctive a thing in it that it craves that milk. It cries out for it. And it won't be satisfied unless it has that milk because it's that milk that will cause that baby to be more than a baby. It will cause it to become a child and then a young man and then a father. And so the scripture says that should be the attitude of people about his word. Craving. The ridding themselves and the craving of the word of God. And then he goes on to say, as you come to him. Now, what most of us don't understand as man is, how do you come to God? When the Lord told Peter that I will make you a fishers of men, he said something very powerful. Because it's difficult to win men to the Lord. And it's difficult to disciple them. Churches all over are filled with women and children because they have more of a sensitivity and more of an awareness of their need of God. But sometimes men are not aware they need God and after they find him, they don't know how to go any place but where they are. They don't know how to move into change and move into growth. They're not sure where they should be or who they should become. It seems difficult to them. And he says, this is how you come. How? By craving the word. That when you get into the word, you're coming to him. Many times, women are able to come to the Lord through devotionals and all kinds of meetings. But you'll find most men that approach God, approach him through the word. And here's what happens. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen of God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, 
are being built up. There's something that goes on by the power of the Holy Spirit. As you keep coming to the Lord in this matter, the Holy Spirit comes along and begins to build you into something that you had no concept that you could ever become. You become a spiritual house. And then a holy priesthood. Those are powerful figures taken from the Old Testament. The house of God. The temple. The family of God. All of those speak of a position of ministry and a position of strength to the world that you need to capture as God's call to you as a man. The house of God was where God's presence was continually available. It's the place where the word of God came forth to the people. It's the place where reconciliation was made to those that were wounded and hurt by sin. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of praise. It was a place of worship. It was the place where, where there was stability and strength and wisdom that came from the throne of God and caused Israel to be what it became. The Bible says that the men that come to him can become like that house of God, a place where the presence of the Lord dwells and where his covenant is, where there is stability and strength and an outflow of grace and strength that affects the whole nation and the world beyond because they come to him. He makes them a house. Then he makes them a holy priesthood. This is not a priesthood between God and man, but this is a priesthood that is only unto him. This is a priesthood of men who walk with God because they love God and who are special to the Lord himself, who love and serve him, know how to worship and praise and honor him and offer spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. The Bible says all this happens as we rid ourselves and desire the word coming to Jesus. All of this happens as a natural process. But we live in a day and age when the church doesn't understand or project a true image of what manliness is and what fatherhood is. And because of the difficulty in our society, even today as I speak about fatherhood, it will awaken wounds in some whose fathers failed them. Because of divorce and the tragedies of of death and dying and all of the things that go along in human beings. There are people here today that are wounded from their fathers, from the abusiveness or fathers who remained selfish or self-centered or, or took advantage of their position in tyrannical manners. But thank God that he gives us a father, as Raina Song said, that whenever there's any failure on the human side, you can turn to your heavenly father and you can receive healing and grace and strength. You really can. It's not just pastoral platitudes, it's the truth. You can turn to the Lord and he can heal you. And he can fill all of those gaps and dysfunctions that we all face. There is no one that doesn't have some dysfunction. So don't be afraid of being dysfunctional. We're all dysfunctional. Every human being has been dysfunctional since Adam. Amen? That's what salvation is all about, is to deal with our dysfunctions and bring us into function in the Holy Spirit. And so, what is manliness? Well, we don't hardly know what manliness is today because there's no clear model. And most of us, even in the church, don't know who to follow. I don't know about you, but I have certain guys in the media that I consider manly. 
Let's consider some of them. What is manliness, anyway? We do have the media model. I've never thought this very much of it, but evidently the advertising media has captured something that interests men, and they use it to sell. When they're not using a beautiful woman, they're using some real rugged Marlboro man type. That's manliness. Now the problem with some of those old little fat guys is we can't pull that off at all. And so we have to either become disappointed or just kind of avoid the issue and block it out and go on. Because every time we look in the mirror, we know it's not going to happen. We have the movie stars that they present. We have the John Waynes and the Clint East, Eastwoods and, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, just the, go, the guys that do it, you know, just to do it, that get it done and, and that have all the neat sayings and all of that. But, you know, that's not what God is talking about either. Then there are the rock and western music stars. I'm telling you, some of the children you see on their walls, the pictures of these rock stars, not knowing that that focus and that kind of adulation of that person is causing them to follow in those footsteps, not understanding the power of those images that are being called manliness to them. That's not what we're talking about either. Then there are the sports heroes. They're known for their prowess in accomplishing difficult physical things. Are these the models you or your sons are following? If so, they're the wrong ones. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 2. Paul says to the Ephesian or to the Colossian church, set your hearts and minds on things above. Now the reason for this, there's, a, there's a, an attraction to what you're focused on. You will move toward what you look at and to what you set your affections on. It's an automatic thing. In Hebrews, the apostle encourages all those who are looking back to the prophets and looking back to the good old days to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not upon David or upon Samson. All of those men had some areas of godliness, but it wasn't the perfect picture. He says, the perfect model is Jesus. Well, Jesus modeled manhood at its highest. He modeled the courage, the gentleness, the forgiveness. He, he modeled the strength. He modeled the relationship. In fact, he modeled the Father. Notice the Bible never talks about his physical attributes. Never talks about what he looked like. Because that's not the picture. When God appeared to the children of Israel, he said to them, If you noticed, I didn't show you a form. Don't make any form that you would bow down or worship. But instead he gave us characteristics, traits, issues of personality that all of us can move into and obtain. All of us. No matter how we look or what our past was or our physical state or our age, we can move into those things and be like God. But we must fix our eyes upon him. We must fix our hearts upon him. We must fix our minds upon him. If you don't, you'll follow 
whatever you're fixed upon. If you notice how marketers use this when you go into a store, you stand at the Abco or the Luckies or not Luckies anymore, Safeway or wherever it is, it's Abco, isn't it? You go in there and before you can get to the cash register, you have to stand between two rows of all kinds of things that you don't need at all. <laughs> Isn't that true? You didn't go to the store to get them. You didn't want them. You don't need them. But they know if they can get you to stand there, your eyes will fall on them and you'll buy them. How many buy in that little spot extras? They see it works. They also know that they've got to get you to look at other things too. And so what they do is when you go to the store to buy milk or vegetables or meat or anything that you have to have, where do you find it? Way in the back of the store. So that you drag yourself by all of this stuff that you don't need or don't have to have. And you can almost tell the profit amount in it. You buy your milk and it's an ugly old plastic carton with a splot on it that says 2% or 1% or no marketing there at all. Slides out of the thing, is bent. But whenever you get into something expensive, it's gorgeous. It's packaged and it's beautiful to catch your eye. And the things that are not so profit-oriented are usually down low and the other things are right at eye level. Isn't it true? Because they understand that you will move towards your focus, what you see. What you see is what you get means more than what they mean. I learned this very early in ministry. One time the Lord showed me this. It was amazing to me. Most of you know that I am just one of those cookie mongers. I just love cookies. And I can't eat them anymore. So people got to stop making me cookies. Because I'm swelling. And uh, I can't eat as many cookies as I used to eat. But every once in a while I binge on them. But at this time Mom Castile had bought us one of those old-fashioned cookie jars. And so Marguerite put the cookie jar out rather than hide the cookies from me. So they were out on the cabinet. And I'm in the house doing my Bible studies on the table over here and just behind everything and just being a good boy and reading. And every little bit, you know, you take your eyes off of this. Where does my eye fall? Cookie jar. Again, cookie jar. Back here, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Cookie jar. Now, I don't know how it happens to me. Nobody tells my legs anything. There is no conscious effort. There, there is no... I mean, this is tricky. See, I've got to get out from behind the table, around the table, over across by the bar stool, around the counter, and over behind the stove, and there's a the cookie jar. And my body just goes, just kind of... Nobody says anything. It's all I do is keep my eyes on that cookie jar, and I'm there. And it's kind of like that with other things you're focused on. The more you focus on them, that's where you're going. So the issue is, what are you focused on? Scripture says you ought to fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he is what we need to become. Now the issue about that is you were born to become like him. That's what being born again was all about. Not just to give you eternal life, but that you could grow up and become a son of God. A child of God. A man of God. 
a woman of God. And so John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, To as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave power to become the sons of God who were born not of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth was the preparation for God to give you the ability and the empowering to become a man of God. Not just to become a born-again pagan. Not to become just a man who had an experience with God and a little bit of knowledge of salvation, but that you could come into the fullness of what God has called you to. But that is through the process of growing. That's what Peter says. Because we're born of the Word of God, now we must grow. Because as we grow in God, by approaching and going after the Word of God, and focusing our attention and our eyes upon Jesus, letting Him be our model, we will become, by the power of the Spirit, this house of God, this stability, this royal priesthood. You see, the priesthood ministry is from where everything else flows. The love of the Lord causes us to become excellent lovers. John speaks about the same thing, only he uses different analogies and also very homey things for us to understand. In 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, all the way down through verse 14, he either writes or repeats a refrain, a kind of a, a poem about these stages of growth and their characteristics. Whenever the scripture quotes a little refrain, you notice in your NIV Bible it's written in poetry form, in format, in your NIV, to point out that it was like a refrain. And they use these to cause people to be able to sing them or chant them or talk them and keep them in their mind because they were important issues for them to know. Now we don't know whether John is writing this for the first time or whether he is making it up or whether it's something that he's copying from somebody else. But it sounds like he's writing it for the first time. Listen to what it says. I write, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. In this refrain, there are three stages of development in the man's life. There is being a child, there is being a young man, and then there is becoming a father. Not an old man, but a father. Understand what he's saying. And then he tells us the subjects of interest to those different stages of life. To the children, it's the sin question. It's trying to keep away from and free from sin. To the young men, it's the strength question and overcoming the evil one or the devil. To the fathers, it's that they have known the Father. It's knowing God. Those are the issues. Now, if we follow that analogy out, pretty, it's pretty easy to see what he's talking about. Because when a child is born and it's a baby, it is the center of all activity. I call it baby rule. Whenever you have a baby in the house, it doesn't matter what you think ought to go on. What goes on is what the baby demands. 
And the only way to get around that is to shut it up in a room and pad it so you can't hear it and lock the door. Now some of you say, John, would you do that? Well, there were times that I did it a couple of times. Not for long. But I want you to understand that there is a rulership that goes on from the self-centeredness of babies. They really are the center. As all they know is their own need. They don't understand anybody else's world. They're not focused on anybody else's problems. They think the whole world ought to give to their particular need. And if they don't get what they want and what they need, they really let everybody know about it. And the wonderful thing about parents' love is they just give to that and give to that until the child grows. And through that loving and that nurture, it grows. But a child in the spirit is much like that. They, have, they, they, they carry no burdens. They do nobody any, other, any good. They just cost everybody ministry and time. They're children. The next stage is spiritual teenagers. Young men. Young men look better than they are. Okay. <laughs> you know, we're the ones that get these neat hairdos. We still have some. And we, and we do the clothes. And we build the bod. And we go around and flex our arms and our muscles. And kind of walk with the elbows out. You know, and show those muscles off. And just feel our strength. And we can do it. And we can handle it. But the problem is, is when those guys, young guys, get working with an older man, they usually find this older man will work them right into the dust. He doesn't look good, but he's learned how to work. He's got a motivation that the young guy doesn't have. Because the young guy is still self-centered. And the only thing he's concerned with is his own deliverance. In his own life. And he writes to them because they're strong and they have overcome the evil one. And you find spiritual teenagers are usually all into power. And into strength. Into what I can accomplish. But you see, it's at this teenage level where men have their biggest adjustment to do. If they'll just remain loyal and faithful to the fathers and to the systems that they're involved in, whether it's school or home or job or whatever, they'll develop into something far greater than they could if they yield and rebel and go off their own way. Because it's these young men under the supervision of a coach that can put athletics together and do things that have unheard of things. Accomplish unheard of tasks. It's the young men that under direction of older men can win battles and move armies and, and establish kingdoms. But when they cop out and they rebel, they remain for years to come, usually the slaves of all the rest or the workforce. So it's very important during this time of being a young person in the Lord to be involved in strength and be involved in overcoming the evil one, but to understand that this is not the top of the ladder. This is not the goal. The goal is to become a father. Fathers don't look as good as they are. Because what happens when you're a father... It begins by marrying, and all of a sudden this guy that couldn't even make his own bed regularly has this beautiful woman that he loves, and now he hits the marketplace and works hard for her. He loses his selfishness, begins to prepare and better her life because he loves her. And then their love produces children, and one by one they come, and he has to go and hit the marketplace harder and harder and work more skillfully, 
and take advantage of every opportunity and grow so that he can big, bring home a bigger paycheck and take better care for them because he wants to take these kids and put them through college and, and bless them and dress them and keep them. And all the time this is going on, he's learning to be less and less selfish and less and less self-centered and more and more driven by other people's needs until his life is surrendered to them. And when we find a grown man that is still selfish, we call him a kid because he hasn't learned what it is to be a father. This is why John said, and it wasn't because of theology, but because as they became fathers, they became selfless and driven to bless. You see, true manliness is learning to give it all to God and to other people. True manliness is learning to do it with joy. Learning to give when nobody else knows the hurt and the pain. Nobody else understands the sacrifice. Because you're learning now to be like your Father in Heaven who gives and gives and gives and gives, who cares and cares. And this is why we must fix our eyes upon Jesus rather than the bravado and the selfishness and the lustfulness and the destruction that man's image has done upon the world. Why do you think we have a woman's movement? It's because of the abusiveness of men. Why do we have abusive? Why do we have gangs in our communities today? It's because fathers have abdicated and have shown themselves as selfish and self-centered. And so God is saying to the Christian men, Hey guys, get your eyes off those models. Get your eyes on me. You can become something so far greater that it will affect not only yourself and your family, but it will be like the house of God to Israel. It will affect the whole nation, what you can become. But you become that, you see, by changing your focus. Getting your focus off of all of those things that it doesn't mean that God won't give you things to enjoy and that you can't have a lot of fun along the way. You'll find the enjoyment that God gives you because you change your focus is far more enjoyable and far greater than that which you have by demanding it and by pushing for it. And the joy that comes back to you because you've planted and you've sowed to the Spirit is far more powerful and far more enduring. In fact, the Bible calls this durable riches. Not riches that fly away or not joy that ends in the morning. So God calls the men of this church to this kind of manliness. Not an outward image of manliness, but an inward image. What you see in Jesus by fixing, focusing your eyes on him. And away from all of this other stuff that will never take us anywhere. Will never enlarge us. Never make us better. Just make people have to put up with us. So the issue of becoming fathers is extremely important. Today, which is Father's Day, a time set aside to honor the sacrifice and the, and the love of fathers. I believe it's a time when God would not only say to the men of Grace Chapel, and I tell you what, as pastor of this church, I am so thrilled with the men God has given us. We have some examples of fatherhood that are fantastic. That not only father their own father, many. And wives join with them. And some of the guys are single and fathering and doing a good job of caring. 
tremendous fathers. We ought to just thank God for these. I know the Lord wants us to honor them. But he wants more than that. And that he wants us to understand that this pursuit of maturity is literally to become fathers in the Lord. To leave childhood. How do we do it? By laying aside some things and by craving the word. And as we crave the word and by that way come to the Lord Jesus, repeatedly joining him. I love the King James in this verse uh, 2. It says, to whom coming? And it talks about the constant approaching and reapproaching the Lord through coming to his word and through reapproaching him. As we do that, that simple exercise of laying aside and approaching God, we're made into something far greater than we ever dreamed we could be. This is why Jesus said, or John said actually in the Gospel of John, as many as received him, to give, gave he power to become the sons of God. Lay aside your Clint Eastwood image. Lay aside your former rock star image or your western music or whatever image. Lay that aside. That's not what you want to be. Fulfillment comes in being like Jesus. So interesting, when God gives women a model, he gives them a proverb and says, she does this and she's virtuous and she does that. She brings her food from afar and she dresses her maidens with scarlet and she uh, dresses herself with satin. But when God talks to a man, he says, be like me. When he talks about marriage, he says, love like I do. When he talks about forgiveness, he says, forgive like I do. Why does God say that? Because he wants us to become like him. But you'll do that if you focus on him. You'll do that if you lay your, your affection on him. You'll do that if you put your heart and your mind and your eyes upon Jesus. Becoming fathers. Cindy, would you come, please? Cindy and Steve.